I think that people often are afraid of change. And I think that what this book does is it helps you approach change in your life in a methodical, action-oriented way. It kind of, it pulls back the fear factor a little bit and helps you jump into action mode. And that is what I hope happens. I'm not saying you should do anything with it because you might go through the whole process and be like, I'm fine where I am, which is great. It really is. But you also may find that you have more options than you even imagined. And I think that it would be a real shame to go through a once in a century pandemic and come out of that and not have any other um, outcome than, well, that was weird. I think the outcome should be, wow, that was significant. I wonder what my life would look like if I made different choices. And what are those choices? That's kind of fun. It's empowering. And I love the idea of taking control. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about bite-sized crime. Looking for a new true crime podcast to binge? Check out Bite-Sized Crime. Each week, I bring you a new case to dissect. I focus on the facts, giving exposure to some of the lesser-known stories in the true crime world. Subscribe to Bite-Sized Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Hi, listeners. Thank you for joining, and I'm so glad to be bringing you my conversation with Jill Schlesinger. Jill is a certified financial planner. She's the Emmy and Gracie Award-winning business analyst for CBS News. She just dropped a book. It's entitled The Great Money Reset. Change your work, change your wealth, change your life. And as she'll explain in the conversation, this came out of everything she experienced with her guests on her podcast, which is entitled Jill on Money, through the pandemic. Now, this podcast is one that I listen to on a regular basis, and it helps me make sure that I am healthy, healthy financially. So let's get to the conversation. For you personally, when have been your great money resets? Well, my biggest, uh, I've had sort of three big ones. Um... One was, I'll say, I'll call it kind of the, the two. One was I was a, a early, early in my career, I was a trader on the floor of the commodities exchange. And I quickly learned that although that was somewhat in my blood, my father was a trader on the American stock exchange. I had to reset because I really didn't like it. And um, no, I was not making so much money that I could just afford to do it. I was making enough money that it was stupid money. And I knew that, but uh, I needed to make a change. The So that was one big change. And I ended up in um, the financial services industry where I was an investment advisor, a certified financial planner, and um, I was a money manager. And I was able to build a company with some partners and we sold that company. And so my next big money reset, which I hope maybe is my last, is uh, was leaving that business and going into media full-time. I had used media in my business to help grow it, but I didn't know if I could do that as a full-time standalone endeavor. So the the bigger reset was the one where I walked away from a company, a lot of money, and went into the unknown. Yeah. Were you scared? I wasn't scared because I'm a little bit of a change monkey. I like change. Um, that's how you end up having um, three life partners in a short period of time. <laughs> So now but, the listeners would be really upset if I didn't ask you a little bit about... Yeah, well, I've had two divorces and I finally found it the right one. The right, the third one's the charm. But, you know, the reality is that um, I wasn't fearful because I had done 
the planning that I outlined in this book. I knew that there was the money. Um, I gave myself a finite period of time and I had options, meaning that I had created game plans. There was like a plan A, a plan B, B, a plan C. And I knew that if, uh, if I, if, if everything went to crap and I had to just get a job selling something, I was, I knew how to sell. I knew that I could sell software. I could sell financial services. That would be fine. I knew that my plan B was that I could do some of this stuff in the media and also be, have, have a job with a financial planning firm that I knew that I could do that. I could always do that. I knew how to do that. And my best case scenario, my plan A was maybe I can actually make a go of it being in media full time. And shock of shocks, uh, plan A came to fruition quite quickly. And it was really good. It was kind of dumb luck because the financial crisis had just happened. The United States was headed into a recession. I had been on the air at CBS a number of times, and they were seeking to open a new website called Money Watch. And they were trying to attract somebody from who had industry knowledge, not a journalist, to kind of be the face and the voice of it. But anyone who was in the industry had either made so much money or was worried about their own business, they couldn't take the leap to do it. So I was this in, like little unicorn that came prancing in and saying, oh, you know, I'm not really interested in a full-time job. And I talked to them. And then three weeks later, I signed a contract. And so I uh, that was in 2009. And I've been with CBS News since. And they've been amazing to me. You were advised, though, at one point or kind of told that maybe you weren't made for media or you wouldn't succeed. Well, you know, uh, I had been on a lot of different networks and one cable network um, executive had, when I thought I'm really going to try to make a go of this, I had asked, uh, I, I basically got in touch with every single person I knew in TV and radio and started asking how I could do this full time. And I really like scorched the earth. I am telling you every single person that I ever spoken to was part of this. And, um, one network executive said to me, uh, you'll never make it. The timber of your voice is just wrong. And, uh, and that was kind of crushing to me. And I remember calling my dad and, you know, in a typical trader fashion, he goes, oh, F him and uh, move on, move on. There's another one. And I had had, and you and I have a connection that I had had two people in my life when I was working in Providence, Rhode Island, who really made me believe that I could do it. And I think that there's a lesson there that when you have um, people in your life who are making things possible and are telling you that you're good at something and they are their subject matter expert. They are the expert in their field that it's kind of good to believe them. And so I'll just, you know, name check these folks that, you know, uh, Betty Jo Cugini, who was at then the news director at WJAR TV in Providence and Bill Hess, who was the program director at a radio station cluster in Providence, Rhode Island. Both of these people said to me, we know this is not really your full-time gig, but you're really good at it. And you should, you know, would you mind if we tried to help you get better at it? And I was like, yeah, why not? You know, sure. So that was really helpful because even when I was disheartened by this comment by this jerk, by the way, who got fired later, not that I have schadenfreude, but I totally did, um, that it was, um, it was always nice to feel like, well, they wouldn't tell me this if they didn't believe it. There was no ulterior motive. And so, um, and listen, the, the world that I'm in, uh, like many in the creative arts, it, it's not a bottom line business. 
You know, like someone has an opinion. Uh, today, you, I can be with you and say like, I'm so lucky. I have wonderful people around me. Tomorrow, a whole new regime can come in and say like, eh, I hate brunettes on the air. I really do. Or I don't like the way she talks or she sounds like too New York Jewish to me or whatever it is. And it's subjective. And because of what I do, you know, the network can rate a show. You can have a piece that goes out. You can have a lot of things, but it's a lot of personal preference. I'm not everyone's cup of tea. I get it. But, you know, there is, there is an audience for, for what I, t what I talk about. And I'm fortunate that CBS believed in me because they were very, in, they, what they really wanted to know was, do I have the ability to, really distill complicated things and present them in a way that the audience can hear. That's what I do. This book, The Great Money Reset, I'm wondering who you had in mind audience-wise. It strikes me as a little bit more mid-career, late-career, elder years, not necessarily for the kid coming out of college. I mean, look, I don't think someone out of college is resetting much because you haven't done anything. <laughs> so um, I think, though... There's an aspect of this book that is sort of, if you're in your late 20s, early 30s, the whole chapter about education really came from my nephews. I have a lot of nieces and nephews. And I had, what was happening at the same time was that there were two, you know, so let's say I'm between both sides of the family, like 16 nieces and nephews. And there were two that were going through this questioning about graduate school amid the pandemic. And that whole chapter really was the was started because I was having conversations with each of them. And I started to hear from a lot of people, well, if there's a pandemic, I'll go back to school. And then we started having these larger conversations about like, what is that degree worth? What are you really trying to gain? Um, and I think that your question is right in that oftentimes you're not resetting until later in life, but often uh, an event can cause you to reset. And that event can be a pandemic. It can be that you really hate your boss and you're like, I should just go back to school. And maybe like, no, maybe you're in the wrong place or maybe you're in the wrong career or maybe your boss is an ass and you need to just go somewhere else. So the idea of a reset is about you figuring out what you want to do and me providing a framework to help you figure out some of the ways to get there. When I was coming up through school and early career, I was seeking finance books to read. I was looking to sort of learn, learn my way out of my deficiencies. And one of the books that really spoke to me was Smart Women Finish Rich, David Bach. And then he also wrote The Automatic Millionaire. For listeners that are wondering, you know, another finance book, Jill, do we need another finance book or manage money book? What makes this different? David Bach was the first guest I had on my podcast, by the way. We're all different characters. There's a lot of information out there about health. There's a lot of information about politics, and we all have different approaches. I do not believe that being rich or having money is an end unto itself. And I think that's a big distinction from a lot of other people who are out there doing what I do. I don't really care about money all that much. I think it's great because it gives you opportunity. Um, and I think that because I was a financial planner for 14 years and I'm still a certified financial planner and that I have that background that my approach is really about what, tell me what you want to do and then let's figure out how to get there. Uh, it is patently absurd to say to somebody, if you stop drinking a latte, you're going to be a millionaire. That's not what's going to happen. 
Um, and it is patently absurd to lecture people about their spending habits because you have no idea who these people are. And I don't really care how people spend their money. If you want to go out to gourmet meals all the time and you can still do the things you want to do and finance your dreams and goals and all that, great. I just don't have a lot of judgment. And I do find that sometimes in this industry, there's sort of a puritanical approach um, that I just, I can't get aboard. It's just not who I am. It's the Ides of March. Silicon Valley Bank is on the news what are you telling um, the audiences when you're going on the news, when they're, you're getting these calls for your opinion right now? Well, I mean, I think what I tried to do, I'm talking to you again on the Ides, but on Monday morning, um, when I went on the air on CBS mornings, what I tried to communicate was, this is not an indictment of the entire banking system. These are two banks, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. They are... Um, they are examples of a type of bank that could come under pressure. They had kind of sketchy management in many ways that made some bad decisions, whether it was, you know, they, they ended up taking a bunch of money and buying long dated bonds, which kind of hurt them and it was risky, or they were signature bank and maybe they did a really good job of serving nonprofit community, but they also got in bed with crypto banks. And, you know, so there were, Part of the the bigger part of the of what I try to do is kind of balance what's happening, explain it, but not add to the hysteria. So I think that on Monday, what I was trying to say was this: the Federal Reserve has stepped in. You, the depositor, you're safe. Please do not go running around starting to move your money around. In fact, if you are a depositor at Signature Bank or Silicon Valley Bank, you are the safest. You're in the safest place of anyone because you're the only one that has an explicit guarantee of all your money, whether it's below $250,000 of FDIC or above. But I also like to acknowledge that it's freaky. And so I'm talking to you today, and I just did an interview with Evening News, and um, there was this question that was kind of interesting was like, you know, these, some of these small banks, these small customers, they're really freaked out. I'm like, who's not freaked out? I mean, there are very uh, sophisticated investors and bankers who are freaked out. There are, in, there are um, people who have lived through many crises who are freaked out. We're human beings. We have emotions. We get freaked out. The question is, what are we going to do with those emotions? And what I'd like to do to do when I'm on the air is kind of tamp down the fever a little bit, explain it so that people don't walk away saying like, I guess I should sell everything, or I guess I want to go hide in a corner. So um, I have known in the, in my workplace as uh, the person who, when the blank is hitting the fan, I tend to be extremely extremely stayed. I get, I, I speak much more slowly. I try to really kind of, okay, let's, let's take, let's take it down a notch because I think that's what people need. Yeah. It's the emergency doctor in you clearly don't raise mm. your voice. Don't externally react. No, in all seriousness, one of the reasons why I brought up college is okay. I may or may not have loved college. And also you have played team sports. I played soccer in high school. I didn't actually continue when I went to college. You played sports. Um, and as well, you bring up your father and his role in finance, although not exactly what you do. And I'm wondering where team sports and where your father have played a role in you becoming a visible voice. My dad was a great 
um, supporter of various career moves. And it was very, it was difficult for me to tell him that I didn't want to trade anymore, that he had always thought that I would come into his firm and be part of that. And I think that was hard. We were very close. Uh, he happened to play soccer in college. So I had the benefit of having a father who was a goalie, a collegiate goalie, and I was a striker. So he spent hours in the goal that was in our backyard set up, um, basically trying to prevent me from scoring on him. And he always said he knew the moment where it was all, it was all over when I could easily score on him, you know, that there was a moment that was very clear. So um, my father's now been dead for almost 10 years. And I think that the thing that he's always been really good about is um, understanding that in, at, at pressure points that you can make a decision that does not have to be does not have to be financially motivated. It can be a, a motivation of like happiness. And so he never really, even though, again, it was hard to make certain decisions when I said I was leaving the firm in Rhode Island and I said, but I'm going to leave money on the table. And he's like, ah, you know what? It's fine. He'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And so, you know, and my mom, who is a, a great supporter and loves me to death, she's just more conservative in nature. So for her, leaving money on the table is leaving security on the table. So why would you do that? And so it's just a different makeup. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not nearly the risk taker that my father was um, because I don't ever want to go broke in my life. And he did that a couple of times. Um, but he was very supportive. And my, I, I always say to my parent that my parents were great for me and my sister because they just always thought that we could do whatever we wanted. It wasn't like you were going to be successful, but you could try whatever you want. And they never sugarcoated it. Like, you know, when I got into Brown, my mother would, I, I heard my mother say to one of her friends, like, oh, she got into Brown early. And my mother says, yeah, well, you know, it's good. She can put a ball in the back of the net. So that helped. And she was right. Like I could do the academic stuff, but I was not getting into Brown University without being a soccer player. Yeah. Any lessons that you think you got from team sports? You know, I, I think the best lesson about being part of a team is, it. yes, there is teamwork, but it's also about knowing how to lose. And I think that absorbing loss and, and making mistakes for someone who is achievement-oriented is an extremely important part of your development. And when you play a sport you know what? You are accepting loss. You you're, you're have to accept and understand that you're not going to get it right all the time. And it was actually, it's very common among trading firms for them to recruit athletes because there is a psychology among traders that is kind of important in that respect, that you cannot dwell on the thing you did wrong and you just have to power through and figure out, well, let me fix that and move forward. So I think that playing team sports for me is also, um, also was like a great lesson in that, like, you're not the best anymore. You know, I came out of high school and I was like the anointed team. Our team was great. My friend Lauren and I were the best people on the team. We both went to Brown. We both got to Brown and we're like, wow, we're not starting. And these people are amazing. And I always think there's like a fun comeuppance in college anyway, where you're not the smartest and you're not the best athlete and you're not even the best musician and you and maybe you are, but like, you still feel like you're not. There's just like a level of excellence that is really different. And I thought that was good. Now I also tell you that um, you would think that I'm going to tell you, you know, I play well with others and I know how to, I know how to collaborate, which 
I do know how to do, but in my career, I do not, I did not like having employees. I really don't like having employees. I'm a good team player. Like I'm a team player at CBS news. I will do anything. Someone calls me from 60 minutes and says, I've got a question about this. If someone calls me from this, I'll talk to anybody and help. I do not like having employees and I never did like having employees, even though, you know, one of my former employees, Aaron. Mm. To be clear, I loved your book, uh, The Great Money Reset, and I read it cover to cover and I took notes on where it applied. Because quite honestly, you know, sometimes on this podcast, healthcare, equity, current trends, people are like, why do you have someone in finance on, Risa? Why did you talk about the baking shop that is a James Beard Award finalist in Philadelphia? Well, because I actually think industries and people have more in common than not, which goes back to you and your discussions with your guests. And... Um, Two things that I'll, I'll just bring out because they really struck me. One is your discussion of role-playing. And when you're going to have potentially a difficult conversation, a crucial conversation, role-playing. So tell us more about that. So this is in my chapter called Bully Your Boss, which many have pointed out to me. My friend Katie, I was on her radio, on her uh, television show, uh, Katie Turr on MSNBC, the only time I got permission to be on a different network. And she's like, do you think it is a little bit out there that you said, use the word bully in a book? Like you're not supposed to do that. And I was like, okay, I needed an acronym. So calm down. Um, and this is about having conversations with your boss about compensation, about what you want. And I think it's really important when you are looking at a, if you're looking at a situation and you're really feeling freaked out about it, one of the things that is help has always been helpful to me is to look through what the issue is, see what you're trying to get, and then to really practice. And I had a producer early in my career at CBS. Her name is Marianne Willman. And she used to drill with me and practice and say, I'm going to be the interviewer. You're going to sit down and we're going to have the camera on and we would practice, practice, practice. And I kind of took this away as like, when you're having hard conversations with somebody, you know, not just looking in the mirror or if you're doing a presentation, like I am one of those annoying people to introverts who can get in front of a room of a thousand people and talk. You know what? That's not natural. Most people do not feel good about that. So one of the things I learned even from my girlfriend who has to like go present before the board of a big company is that when you're practicing, you just feel more confident. You feel better and you feel like you're getting your, your point across in a way that is efficient, that you're not filling space. And so understand, you know, sort of understanding what is, what is it that you're asking for, understanding the landscape and leaving yourself time to practice is really important. It can really, really um, help you succeed in whatever it is you're trying to do. And you know what? You can do this in like your real life too. Like if you're feeling like, oh man, Risa and I got to have, I have a hard conversation with Risa. She like really disappointed me. Like I am missed through the front door. So I am no problem with that. Like I, I don't, I'm not saying I want to like make you feel bad, but I want to have a conversation. Another standout for me was exit interviews and your advice regarding exit <laughs> interviews. Lie, just lie. <laughs> there is nothing to be gained. Um, and listen, I have had a very treacherous relationship with this. 
because I have had, I am so blunt that when my friend who is like part of the new brass at CBS News was asking me about a couple of people that I wanted to say like that person is an imbecile and, you know, but really why, why am I doing that? So I have struggled with this and I think there is a way to give constructive criticism and there is a way that not to. So if I am asked to, I was on a board, I resigned from the board and they said, what did we do wrong? And there was a real answer and there's the answer I gave. And the real answer was kind of like, you know what? I've been here for a while. This has been great. I did what I think I came to do. And, you know, there were some other issues. But the issues that I would raise were not solvable and it was not helpful because the issues were already apparent. And for me to say that sort of kind of like, why would I do that? Why would I do that? I wasn't going to make the organization better. If I thought that someone was like dangerous, yes, of course I'd say something. But have you ever been in a situation where someone says to you like, what do you think of so-and-so's boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife? It's kind of like a non-winning conversation if you don't like the person. Unless you think your friend is in danger. Not my cup of tea, but if you like them, great. But I don't even say that anymore. You and I have overlapping experiences. I've had people beg, 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 beg me to please tell them my honest opinion. And uh, it never went well. <laughs> they never wanted to speak to me again. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. It's not good. It's not good. And uh, maybe... Maybe the better, maybe if we can like sort of, I'm going to give you a few extra minutes on this because this is a fascinating topic. Maybe the better thing to ask in response is, what do you think you need to know? Right? Like we have to be shrinks a little bit, right? You have to be curious in this world. And I think um, if you lead with curiosity, you're probably better off. Sometimes people are asking you these questions and it's about them and it isn't about you. So just be careful because sometimes we'll, we'll take that trap. We'll fall into that trap and we'll take that bait. What would you say about how you try to create access and belonging? Well, I mean, number one is that you have to own your own. Am I allowed to curse on this show or not? What's your cursing policy? I mean, you have to own your own shit. Like I was on, uh, I was doing something. I was on a panel once and someone was, it was like a career panel or something. I said, let's be blunt. I grew up with money. I could do whatever I want. I had a safety net. There was not like, oh my God, there was such a leap of faith. Like that's a really different thing. But I never confused the fact that I was unfortunately born only on second base. I wish it were third. But, um, uh, but you know, if you were born on second base, you have a lot more access and you, uh, you have an appreciation. But I never thought that I was born on second base and I deserved to be there. And I never thought that um, having a few bucks growing up and not like wildly crazy wealthy things, but I used to call my father on this. He would say, well, we're upper middle class. I said, I don't really think so. I think it's upper. I know you don't feel as rich as some of the other people in your community, but we're not middle class by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think what was interesting is that being a financial advisor really was great, especially in a state like Rhode Island, which has a lot of very, um, it's like an, it's not a great place when it comes to like overall diversity, but there's a lot of like blue collar, white collar worlds that collide. And, um, and I thought that I learned a lot about that. I learned that someone who makes $80,000 a year 
and is a teacher may have an awesome life. And someone who's making $80,000 a year as a law associate might have a horrible life. And it's a lot about, you know, where you come to this. And what I try to tell people when we're on the show is that, you know, I used to get hate mail, like, oh, why do you have someone with $5 million on the air? I'm like, I don't care. You want to come on the air with $5? Come on the air. You want some? But guess what? Everyone is completely emotional and freaked out about their money. And so as a result, everybody has an opportunity to ask a question. It's like saying you're rich and you ended up at the very best doctor at Sloan Kettering. Doesn't mean you're not allowed to ask questions of that doctor. It does. You are there. You are lucky that you're there. God bless you. You're there. But it doesn't mean you take it for granted. And it doesn't mean that I judge anyone who has less than or more than. Your voice. When did you realize you had a voice and when did you start using it? Generally speaking, as a kid, I was seen as a, you know, child of the 60s and 70s. And so I was an aggressive girl who was sent to therapy because I was seen as too aggressive, which now is like laughable. Like it's just, I, I wasn't, I wasn't mean. I played sports very aggressively, very aggressively. And I, and I always did. Um, so I knew I'm not like a natural leader. I'm not, that doesn't, that's not sort of what happens for me. I am a caretaker. So a funny thing happened to me once when I was in high school, I grew up, you know, again, in a sort of a wealthy town and I was a jock. So I was shielded from a lot of like bitchy girl stuff in high school and junior high school. So in junior high school, uh, somebody told me this at one of our reunions. I said, uh, I, I was walking with a friend of mine, a guy and hung out with guys quite a bit. And, um, and I was walking and this girl behind me heard me say, I was talking about her and I was saying these princesses who kind of ruled the roost of the class. I said, Oh my God, these princesses are so mean to Ellen. Like what's their problem? What's their beef? Like ridiculous. I said, I'm going to be friends with her. I don't care. And she said that that was like a moment of her life. Like up to that point that she had never felt like anybody was like nice to her. And she told me that like at one of our our high school reunions many years later, she goes, you have no idea like how much that meant for me. So I think that hearing that, I, I, I don't like bullies in general. And I, so I, I like to think that I, I kind of use my voice for that way that I'm an up, that I'm an upstander, not a bystander. Um, and that, um, my actual voice, um, they, Betty Jo and my friend Bill told me that I have a very good broadcast voice and that I should lean into that. And, you know, when I do a hit on WCBS radio, which happens to go from New York City across the Long Island Sound and get to Westerly, Rhode Island, Betty Jo will sometimes send me a note saying, oh, you're so good. That was great. And, um, and so that's kind of awesome. So, um, you know, listen, I think that uh, I'm also somebody who likes to, um, I really do like to advocate for other women. Uh, and I, I find that that is kind of nurturing for me. So I feel like that's good because not, there weren't a lot of women who took care of me um, until I got to CBS News where I actually, there was an amazing network of professional women who really brought me in. All right. Final pitch. Why should the audience buy your new book? 
Oh my God. If you're not in love with me by now, it's ridiculous. I don't even have to make a pitch. Um, you know what? I think that people often are afraid of change. And I think that what this book does is it helps you approach change in your life in a methodical action oriented way. It kind of, it pulls back the fear factor a little bit and helps you jump into action mode. And that is what I hope happens. I'm not saying you should do anything with it because you might go through the whole process and be like, I'm fine where I am, which is great. It really is. But you also may find that you have more options than you even imagined. And I think that it would be a real shame to go through a once in a century pandemic and come out of that and not have any other um, outcome than, well, that was weird. I think the outcome should be, wow, that was significant. I wonder what my life would look like if I made different choices. And what are those choices? That's kind of fun. It's empowering. And I love the idea of taking control. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to Jill. Jill, thanks for making this conversation happen, especially amongst a pretty chaotic week. It was the Ides of March and the kerfuffle of the Silicon Valley Bank was uh, in effect. Audience, some take-home points. You know, finances are personal. Finances uh, can be private, they can be public. Um, and we all have a different approach based on our upbringing and based on, you know, what we've decided to do with our life, how we've navigated our careers, our professional life. What I think is find some books, read some books. Find some podcasts, listen to some podcasts, speak with people, people on your personal board of directors who you trust. What I'd recommend is that you make safe, healthy decisions for you now, but also so that you can plan in the future for ultimate wealth and health. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano Deporto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued. <laughs>